Hello, it's Alex, and it's Alex's Procrastination Station. And this week, I'm going to be talking about well-being, but also toilets, and why we're wrong about everything, and Twitter, and the world, and me, and more of me, because I am vain. All right. So, um, starts off a little bit sadly, this episode actually. So this is the well-being episode, but I've been looking through my notes and I don't know when I'm going to get to well-being. I mean, it's all about well-being, but see, I start off for aficionados of the show and it's nice to see we've got two people here. We've got Randy. Don't know Randy. Oh, Joseph Wright is here. My brother, he's got nothing better to do. So he's turned up to support his brother. Hi, Joe. We've got somebody with a bizarre auto-generated name. Randy's gone. Um, bye, Randy. That was so soon. Um, Lucy. Lucy's here. Lucy Von SC. Lovely to see Lucy. Possibly the nicest person that I don't actually know. Um, supports all my work on Twitter and makes me feel good about myself. So hi, Lucy, as well. Mm. So today is the well-being episode. Um but it really will cover more broadly um, a discussion of the human mind and what the hell is wrong with it. Um, and I also, you know, I'm going to say here that I can only talk from my own experience and my own kind of biases. But I want to hear in the chat as well what people think about what I'm saying, um, whether they think I'm t- talking nonsense. Um, but we are going to ultimately end up talking about um, well-being, teacher well-being. We're going to talk about our well-being in modern society. And we're going to think about, you know, how well we feel. You know, we've had a difficult couple of years. Um, are we doing life properly? Anyway, I'm actually going to start off with a very famous sad person. I'm going to start off with uh, Vincent van Hoff. Um, everyone pronounces it Van Gogh or Van Gogh. Um, I have it confirmed by QI that it's not either of those. John Palmer's here as well. Nice to see John Palmer. Um, and I believe it is actually pronounced in Dutch, Vincent van Hoff. And I'm going to pronounce it like that because no one is going to say to me, what, what are you saying? Who's that? And then I have to go van Gogh because it's difficult, but I have it on good authority from Stephen Fry and the QI elves that it is pronounced van Hoff. And so that is how I'm going to pronounce it. So there, um, there we go. G's like weird H's in Dutch. Well, you'd know, wouldn't you? With, with, yeah, living with her. So, right. I'm actually going to read you, um, part of a letter from Theo van Hoch, um, to his sister, uh, Lise, as she was known, um, Elizabeth van Hoch. And it's about Vincent. They all used to correspond with each other quite a lot. And it's from the 5th of August, um, 1890. And it's about Vincent van Gogh's last moments. And I want to start with this because I think it says quite a lot about sadness. Um, I actually came across this reference in a Manic Street Preacher song, um, La La Tristessa um, Duera, um, which is um, part of this letter. Anyway, here's the letter. So Theo writes in 1890, he as in Vincent, did not wish to stay alive, 
and his mind was so calm because he had always fought for his convictions, convictions that he had measured against the best and noblest of his predecessors, his love for his father, for the gospel, for the poor and the unhappy, for the great men of literature and painting, is enough proof for that. In the last letter which he wrote me, and which dates from some four days before his death, it says, I tried to do as well as certain painters whom I have greatly loved and admired. People should realise that he was a great artist, something which often coincides with being a great human being. In the course of time, this will surely be acknowledged, and many will regret his early death. He himself wanted to die when I sat at his bedside and said that we would try to get him better and that we hoped that he would then be spared this kind of despair. He said, La tristesse duera toujours, the sadness will last forever. I understood what he wanted to say with those words. Life has been unfaithful and it all promised so, so much. And that's a really profound, actually, from John. Yeah, and this really stuck with me, this this last bit as well, when it said he himself wanted to die. And he says, the sadness will last forever is his purported last words. And Theo says, I understood what he wanted to say. And I've been thinking about the idea of sadness recently. And um, there's a blog post coming out on Substack in a few days, which is about the idea of necessary sadness and an argument that we should actually seek sadness out in some cases and that it can be good for us. Um, But Vincent's words here are the antithesis of that. This is somebody who sees no end to sadness. The sadness will last forever. And the only way to stop the sadness is for life to end. So I'm starting on a really dark note here. But the reason I wanted to is because I think I want to acknowledge straight away that what I'm going to talk about today is not going to be about uh, mincing words. Um, If we're going to talk about well-being, then we're going to do it properly. Um, Because I think, first of all, and this is my gut feeling, and this is something that's been swilling around in my head, and it came up actually, I was talking to uh, Nathan Ginn on um, Staff Room 101, and I said I wanted to put well-being, the word well-being and well-being in schools just into Staff Room 101, into the bin. Because I argued, and I think I still stand by this, I'm very, you know, happy to be flexible, happy to be argued with. But I think as soon as we start doing well-being initiatives, they become tokenistic. It becomes about, okay, how can we look like we're doing the well-being? This is the thing we need now need to be doing. And I find that the last thing that gets dealt with whenever we start talking about mental health is people a lot of the time. And this is what it comes down to. Now, the reason that it's been on my mind as well is because there was um, a tweet um, on December 23rd. I'm not going to say who it's from. You can find it yourself if you like. Um, But it said, and and it really uh, made some waves on social media it said a huge shout out to our parents who didn't cry quote mental health when they were struggling to give us this life a lot of people got angry with that um 
to say I got angry would be a bit of a um, an overstatement. Um, I don't really get angry by things I see on the internet because I'm partly convinced that it's all a simulation. It's all a game. And I try to see uh, Twitter a little bit like it's a, a game. Um, and so I try not to get too upset about things. Uh, people can be frustrating, but I try not to let it get to me too much, even though it can. I understand why it does get to people and people can be very horrible. But what got me about this was it represented an attitude that we should be quiet and the idea that as soon as we talk about mental health it's about exposing weakness but even if it is and i think it is to an extent um it's the exposure of weakness i'm not sure that's a negative thing at all and i think that if we all are more comfortable with being weak in front of each other. I feel like we could solve um, quite a few problems in human interaction and human discourse. Um, so all Peter O'Hearns here as well. It's nice to see you've got six listeners, which is absolutely lovely. It's really nice to see everybody here. So I suppose this show, um, I went on a bit of a journey, a bit of a rambling journey. Um, a lot of my notes, I've got them open here, just say, I don't know where I'm going with this. I just kept writing down, I don't know where I'm going with this. The scope's too broad. I don't know what I'm trying to say. I don't know what I think. But I knew I wanted to make a show about mental health. I knew I wanted to make a show about well-being. And it might be that this show ends up being um, a two-parter. I've got loads of things I want to talk about. So, But I do want to respond kind of throughout the show to this idea um, about how we should deal with our well-being, what we should do, how we should talk about it, whether talking about it actually does help. You know, what if we do just need to shut up and stop crying about it? I'm not saying I, I agree with that, but I want to look at all angles. But first of all, let's have a little look at all of the different um, places I went to while trying to make this show. Welcome to Alex's Procrastination Station. This is Distraction Pieces. So the first thing I um, I started thinking about was the human mind more generally. And I started thinking about um, why we don't change our minds very easily. And I think there is a link here to our, to our well-being. Because I noticed this on Twitter. The amount of times I've seen someone change their mind on Twitter, I can probably count on a finger you know and you wonder why people engage in these debates almost if they're not willing to shift even a little um and i read this article in the new yorker called uh, why facts don't change our minds um and it led me to think about among other things toilets and people's self-belief and it led me to read about an experiment called the toilet experiment which was um, a study conducted at yale um Graduate students were asked to rate their understanding of everyday devices, including toilets, zippers, and cylinder locks. Um, they were asked to write detailed step-by-step -step explanations of how the devices work and then to rate their understanding again. And the effort revealed to the students their own ignorance. So when they were asked, oh, how well do you think um, you know how a toilet works? They go, yeah, obviously I know how a toilet works. I'm not stupid. I use one every day, most days, all the time. Um, you know, toilets, brilliant. But the toilet experiment proved that when you say to someone, okay, then give me a step-by-step, -step, give me a flow chart. How does the toilet work? They go, well, you sit on it and porcelain is involved. You have that bit where it's too cold. And then you, there's a handle. 
chance get splashed you know and if the toilet seats up you get poop on your toothbrush so that's about as much as people tend to know um, about um, about toilets. But we think we know more and we tend to assume expertise. This does tie in a little bit to the um, Dunning-Kruger effect um, that I talked about last time. At least I think I did. Maybe that was a dream. But anyway, and um, Sloman and Fernback um, see this effect. Um, it's called the illusion of explanatory depth pretty much everywhere people always believe they know more than they actually do this there's this bias we have towards ourselves and towards um our own knowledge and a lot of it's linked to they reckon is that we can persist in this belief because of the expertise of other people human beings are really good uh, relying on the expertise of others and this links to teaching as well isn't it because we rely on other people so much we rely on other teachers but our students rely on us you know i'm struck by i don't know if anyone can relate to this teachers but um when you put on a revision session the amount of students who are suddenly way more interested in the revision session than they are during the lesson because they think you're going to impart some sort of secret arcane knowledge you've been holding back for the special section uh, for the special um thing you're putting on after school um but we've been relying on um, each other's expertise because it makes sense, because it helps us survive. We, we hunted together, we built farms together, we looked after each other. So we collaborate so well that we almost have this sense of a, of a hive mind. We have this sense of um, we, we can't tell where our own understanding ends and the understanding of others begins. And so we think, oh, because I'm in this world with these things and they work for me, we tell ourselves a little story about how we are the master of that domain when in reality we've just seen a picture of that domain but we couldn't even point to it on a map but um Sloman and Fermak argue that um it can become quite dangerous you know when we think like this too much um they did their own um version of the toilet experiment but they substituted public policy for household gadgets. And so they asked people in 2012 questions like, should there be a single payer healthcare system, America? Um, you know, merit-based pay for teachers um, and so on, the idea. Um, and they were asked to rate their positions depending on how much they agreed or disagreed with it. So far, so simple. So what do you think about this uh, political thing? Do you agree or disagree? Then they were asked um, how that such policies could be implemented in as much detail um, as they could, you know, uh, what would the impact be of implementing them and gotten to talk in detail. And then they ran into trouble because they didn't know. They just had these beliefs. They didn't know why they did. But then they, um, some of them changed their beliefs. Some of them uh, ratcheted those beliefs down in terms of intensity. Um, and, and generally speaking, they either agreed or disagreed less vehemently. But what was interesting as well is um, it wasn't just that people held these opinions quite strongly, but they were quite, um, it was so certain of these opinions. There was just no way that they were going to change their minds. And so... I think this is one of the first things that we've got to deal with when we're dealing with mental health is we're dealing with human beings and human beings haven't got a clue what's going on most of the time. We are locked into our little consciousnesses. Um, we presume that the expertise of others is the expertise of ours. And so our processing of the world, our understanding of the world and our own place in it is a problem. We have a tendency to overestimate our own expertise. But this seems to me, just on the surface of things, to be a bit of a contradiction. 
Why are so many of us sad if we all think we're brilliant? If we all think we know everything and we're all certain, then why are so many of us sad? And I'm convinced, I mean, maybe it's because I'm an English teacher, which means that, you know, to study English is to study writers and to study writers is to study bloated alcoholic suicides. So why, why do we have this, this sadness that, you know, in the words of Vincent van Hoff, uh, goes on forever? Um, and Elaine's laughing. Thank you, Elaine, for that. For that, I love. I love that emoji. It's my favourite. Uh, and thank you for liking the show, everybody, so far. So, so this was where I went. First of all, I started to think about, you know, could our problems with mental health partly be to do with our problems with with finding the truth about the world and our place in it, and actually finding out the truth about ourselves? If we tell ourselves stories about ourselves that aren't true. Could this perhaps be one of the reasons why we're so sad? So I started to uh, to poke away at that, but then I got distracted by Georgian toilets. Now, I read an article um, on the Public Domain Review, um, which is possibly my favourite site. It's fast becoming my favourite site. The Public Domain Review has, is an incredible uh, source of um, knowledge from anything in the public domain. Um, and I read an article called Lose lewdness and literature because i'm a sucker for alliteration but also for those three things now especially lose and lewdness and i suppose literature now it's all about um from the 1730s it's about a compilation um called the merry thought and it's all about um is a collection of graffiti that has been found on public toilet walls from the Georgian era. Um, and they're all uh, transcribed. Um, and this is a book of what's known as Latrinalia. Um, and it's a wonderful window into Georgian life. And there's this whole article, I really recommend it. I'm going to, if should I remember, uh, put all of these links um, on Twitter after the show, um, because I really think you can go on quite an interesting reading journey with some of these. Um, and so, um, you know, a bit like today's Good Lou Guide, which I found out is also a thing. Um, basically, the um, this 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 merry thought um, was parodying the nation's kind of polite literature. It was so it was kind of, it was debasing everything about Georgian society that purported to be enlightened and sophisticated, and it brought it all crashing down to the scatological depths of the bog house. Um, but you know this isn't without uh, without similarity. You know T. S. Eliot claimed that to a certain extent all poetry was a form of defecation, um, and I can rather horribly, I think I see where he's coming from. You know, T.S. Eliot talks about poetry as being something that, you know, comes from our bowels, comes from the dirtiest parts of ourselves. You know, we elevate ourselves. We think we're brilliant, you know, like, um, you know, like I was just saying, we think we're brilliant. We put on all these airs and graces and we build a society and we build status around ourselves, but we all poop into the same toilets and it all goes into the same place. And this is kind of uh, what's going on. There's, uh, there's one in Hoxton and it's called, uh, it's, it's um, naturally most of these are anonymous, um, but this one um, from Hoxton, and it just says Hoxton on a wall. And um, here's a little rhyme that somebody wrote on a Georgian toilet wall: What difference between kings, turds, and mine? One may be costive, one be full of slime. Yet equally will any hog that feeds produce good pork by feeding on our needs. 
And then underneath, someone's written, you nasty dog, you may eat your pork yourself. And Elaine says, gives a whole uh, new meaning to Wordsworth's spontaneous overflow. Well, when I was at university, um, someone did say, uh, oh, no, do you know what? This is a shout out to my good friend, Tom Clark, who told me that I think it was Byron's nickname for Wordsworth was William Turdsworth. Now, whether he was yanking my chain, he told me this a lot, but uh, but Tom tells me that William Wordsworth's nickname was William Turdsworth, and Byron um, was spoken to about Wordsworth. He said, William Wordsworth, more like William Turdsworth. And I think that's pretty apposite, to be honest with you, all those daffodils. Now, but what we've got on this wall is, is a lovely little satirical... Um, a pair of couplets you know what difference between king's turds and mine um they are they are equal you know and in the same way you know any uh, any hog that feeds will produce good pork um so what we've got here is is satire we've got uh, and uh, one would think <laughs> i'm not reading that out john um but yes that's splendid um so and actually, there's another one there, which uh, there's another one in the book, which is there's nothing foul that we commit, but what we write and what we um, I've been told I can't swear on on the air, which rhymes. Um, but that's very similar, isn't it? That, um, you know, we were all united by our our most disgusting uh, parts. But not only do we have um, on on the walls, we also have um, other things as well. We have lots of love poetry. A lot of it's very, very bawdy. A lot of it uh, pigeonholes women in all sorts of uh, stereotypical and predictable ways. But there's a lovely one which was uh, from a bog house in Bath. And it goes, I kissed her standing, kissed her lying, kissed her in health and kissed her dying. And when she mounts the skies, I'll kiss her flying. And underneath, somebody's written, well said, my boy, and signed it RS. And I just think that's really, really lovely. I just thought that was really lovely um, that a man while doing a poo would write a lovely little love poem to his wife. You know, and it just goes to show, doesn't it? I don't know what it goes to show, but it goes to show something. I think um, what what's even more enjoyable when I was reading this than the actual rhymes themselves was the fact that so many of them were annotated, corrected and commented on. You know, it's a little bit of kid, like a kid's exercise book, um, but cleaner. And um, what what's interesting is is that no matter what we will find a way to communicate with each other and we can't resist responding to each other you know now whether that's empathy or whether that's something else or whether that's just us wanting to have our own say you know and wanting to have the last word and wanting to capitalize on someone else's moment who knows but what it does suggest is that we want to respond to other human beings. We just don't really know what to do when we do it, you know, and that's what I really liked about the one from Bath, you know, underneath the guy just goes, well said my boy, you know? So it also reminded me of Twitter as well. You know, all of these, um, all of these messages on, uh, on a bathroom wall that were commented on and um, and swilled around and you know there were you know there was silliness and ribaldry and comedy and high and low and all that sort of thing and it's all about you know that vox populi isn't it twitter and a 
and graffiti on a Georgian bughouse wall. It's all about ordinary people um, having a say and coming together and trying to figure out the madness of this this mystery that we've got, this humanity that we all share and trying to figure it out together. And rather predictably, because we don't know what's going on and because we don't understand anything, we end up just mashing our heads together madly. So be that as it may. It made me think about toilets a bit more, to be honest with you. And I ended up, um, and once again, actually, on the uh, public domain review, coming across a wonderful picture, and I've tweeted this a few times. Um, it's of uh, the demon Belphegor, and he's on the toilet. Um, this is actually from the 1800s, and it's um, from uh, La Dictionnaire Infernale, I believe it's pronounced, if you're French, which I'm not. Now, it's by uh, Colin de Plancy, and he um, created this massive uh, dictionary of demons. And there, are, and the most famous version is a version I think from the eighteen thirties, which is fully illustrated. And the illustrations are something else; they are incredible. But he 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 um, catalogues all of these demons and what they stand for and why we should be worried about them. But Belphegor is my favourite. Um, he's associated with the deadly sin of sloth, and he's shown hunched, straining um, on a toilet. And, and the most wonderful thing about the illustration is he's holding his tail out of the way. Um, it's a fantastic picture. Um, and Colin Diplancy, the reason I mentioned this, actually, and it does link back to what I was saying about uh, mental health and the human mind, is that um, a guy called Island Stevens said that dictionaries are like mirrors. They're a reflection of the people who produced and consumed them. And what's really interesting is Colin Diplancy, throughout his life, vacillated between rationalism, faith, willingness to believe without evidence, superstition. He was never static in his um, his beliefs. And so we can see um, in his uh, dictionary for now, it's not just about a literal belief in demons, but his by writing about all these demons, he's exploring different parts of the human condition and parts of himself. He's exploring the kind of the demons within, you know, and we could argue that why do we create demons and devils? Because it's an externalization of the things that we are most afraid of about ourselves. And so the externalization is almost like a kind of an exorcism. We can remove them, we can get them out there, but we also take them from being abstract to concrete by personifying them. We get them out there somewhere we can see them. We're very afraid of the unknown and the abstract, I think. And so the reason I bring this up is because I'm, it kind of ended up, it made me um, think, kind of go off on two separate strands of distraction. One of them was thinking about dictionaries and the other one was um, thinking about demons. Um, the first brief one I want to talk about is um, I started thinking about the OED word of the year. Now in the chat very quickly, what was the OED word of the year, people? For last year, obviously, not for this year. Anyone remember what it was? It's a really obvious one. It wasn't woke, Peter. It wasn't woke, actually, but uh, that's a really, really good guess. It's a really short word. I thought Palmer would be all over this. It's vax. Thank you. Social science. Yes, it is vax. Um, and, and the reason I, I bring this up is because I was really struck by um, Island Stavens saying that dictionaries are like mirrors. They're a reflection of the people who produce and consume them. And that got me to think, okay, but it's the same thing true about the OED words of the year. And I think it is, you know, this word vax represents the human collective effort to save itself. 
Um, but it also represents a bit of selfishness. You know, the idea that wealthier countries are are getting vaccinated uh, way, way quicker, for example. It represents a division in society as well, the vaccinated versus the unvaccinated. Um, and so once again, just by looking at the, the word of the year, we can start to explore ourselves as well. You know, dictionaries and the words within them and the are reflections of the people who compose them. We are our language and our language is us. And this is part of the problem with dealing with mental health is that we're attempting to um, codify, we're attempting to uh, make concrete all of this abstract, incredibly subjective stuff that rattles around in our own head. And even there, I just said rattles around. It doesn't. The reason I said that is because I wanted to make it feel like something tangible. Um, but of course it isn't. And this is what makes it very um, difficult. Anyway, then I started to read about demonic possession. I came across uh, Clara Germanic um, Seller, I think her surname is. Um, she was, I think she was Italian. My notes are, are not uh, enlightening me on the subject. Um, but she was a really famous case. Uh, she's quite young of uh, demonic possession. She would have conversations with people that no one could see. She would fall into fierce arguments with invisible beings. She would tear her clothes. She would growl. It was all very, very exorcist. Um, religious items would cause her harm. They would cause her skin to bubble up and things like this. She could understand and speak languages she'd never heard before. She could allegedly read minds. Um, and nuns and staff um, could end, she used to levitate, um, and they could end her levitation with holy water, skin would smoke. Uh, there was a priest called uh, Father Erasmus um, who was sent for because he was supposed to be very good at exorcisms. It took him three weeks to turn up, during which time she was, well, she was being very demonic. Now, permission was requested from the Vatican for immediate exorcism, it was granted. Um, and the deal she made with him um, was that he had to do it himself. Um, he actually got another priest to help him. She was furious and violent, so he ended up having to do it himself. Um, and he successfully exercised what apparently was the devil itself, uh, not just a minor demon. It wasn't Belfagor, he was too busy on the toilet, I think. But um, it, was, um, it was Satan himself. Um, within months of the exorcism, though, she got worse again. Um, a second exorcism was performed, but at 22, shortly afterwards, she died from what we assume is heart failure. Why do I talk about this? Well, the thing is, is that um, it's one of those cases that many, many, many people believed and still believe was a case of bona fide um, demonic possession. Now, I can't say for certain whether demons and the devil um, can inhabit um the bodies of human beings. Quite fascinated by it, thanks to my Catholic upbringing. I'm quite fascinated by the idea of losing control, and I'll talk about that in a moment, and how that's kind of going to link me back to mental health a little bit. Um, but for me, it's it's more to do with, again, um, human beings being full of biases and blind spots. And, you know, we get this kind of magical thinking. We can be deluded. We tend to see patterns, you know, where they they don't necessarily um, exist. Um, and so this is going to really start to, to lead me back um, to the ideas about mental health um, and the human mind that I want to talk about. Um and about possible ways to heal. So I'm going to play the news advert and the tech briefing in just a moment. But do stay with me because uh, when we come back, I'm going to be talking about um, human biases and blind spots, including Occam's razor and the lesser known Occam's broom.
and then Occam's basket, Occam's hand, hands. No, it's not. It's just Occam's razor and Occam's broom. Hanlon's razor. Um, I'm going to be talking about the homunculus and what that might tell us about human nature. Um, I'm going to talk about why we're wrong about everything. And then I'm going to talk about hidden advantages to pain and suffering. After that, I'm going to be interviewing at NeuroTeachers. Um, this is uh, Katrina's um, agreed to speak to me. She's in the studio right now. Um, it's lovely to see Katrina there. Um, the last half an hour, I'm going to be interviewing uh, Katrina about well-being in schools um, and getting her perspectives on where we might be going right and wrong with looking after teachers um, and what we can do to make things uh, better in our schools for our teachers and our students at this difficult time. So don't go anywhere. Here's Gail and other stuff with the news. Are you looking to take your phonics practice forward? Then Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised is the programme for you. Created by two schools with an excellent track record in phonics, Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised will help all children become readers and ensure no child is left behind. The programme offers complete support for your phonics teaching, alongside classroom resources and fully decodable readers from Collins Big Cat. To find out more, follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram or join a free briefing by visiting littlewondelettersandsounds.org.uk. Teachers Talk Radio is delighted to support Winston's Wish, the UK's childhood bereavement charity. Winston's Wish supports children and their families after the death of a parent or sibling. They provide emotional and practical bereavement support. Expert teams also provide online resources, specialist publications and training for professionals. Find out more about Winston's Wish and pledge your support at www.winstonswish.org. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. A variety of mitigations are in place in schools across the UK as fears of COVID remain high. In England, secondary pupils will have to wear face coverings in classrooms, as well as communal areas, but staff will not be expected to wear a mask while teaching. Education Secretary Nadim Sahawi is taking advice in case of mass staff absence. Schools in England are also required to keep hygiene and ventilation measures in place. In Wales, all staff and pupils have been expected to wear a mask indoors in secondary schools since the end of November. The start of the new term has also been delayed until the 10th of January to give schools time to prepare and secondary pupils will be expected to take a lateral flow test three times a week. The Welsh Government has also lowered the self-isolation period from 10 to 7 days if the person has a negative test on the 7th day. In Scotland, pupils and staff have been required to wear face coverings in secondary schools since the second lockdown. Staggered start times, one-way systems, restrictions on assemblies and twice-weekly testing are also present in schools in Scotland. People in Scotland must isolate for 10 days when they or someone in their household tests positive for COVID. In Northern Ireland, 
children must remain at home if they develop symptoms until they have a negative result. Pupils must also test twice a week. Staff and secondary school pupils must also wear a mask while on site. This has been your daily education news briefing with Gail Glenn. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Happy New Year! This is the first in a short series on the New Year's resolution a lot of us make and the effect tech can have on it. Can technology really help us get fit and healthy? According to the Fitness Industry Association, around 80% of people who sign up to a gym in January stop going in February. Can technology provide a free alternative? Now before I start I need to throw down a disclaimer here. I am assuming you already have a mobile device that is capable of running apps, therefore the cost of the device is written off, and I take no responsibility for any pain, both physical and or mental that you will inflict on yourself. You are responsible for your own scaling and moderation. That being said, there are thousands of free fitness apps out there. The first barrier for teachers is time. School Week have reported one in four teachers working over 60 hours a week, so in a 12-hour day, where do you fit a workout in? If the gym's out of the question, what are the other alternatives that are time flexible? Let's start with some totally free options. YouTube is full of fitness videos and challenges from sit-ups and press-ups to squats and chin-ups. A more extreme example is Athlean X. This channel is dedicated to workouts with pro trainer Jeff Cavalier. Some claiming to make a difference in just seven minutes a day. This may seem crazy, but seven minutes is a lot more than nothing and adds up to more than three quarters of an hour per week. If you're more of a social media motivated person, how about one of the many fitness tracking apps for walking, running or cycling? Most have a free basic package and in-app purchases for additional features. If I use Strava as an example, a free basic package allows you to track your exercise, join friends, set challenges and meet people around the globe with similar interests. My only word of warning would be to ensure you consider your profile settings to keep yourself safe. Hiding the start and end of a walk, run or ride for example, will stop your home being shown on a map. For most people pushed to time, this will be where you start and end your exercise. Also, if you exercise regularly at the same time, this could be showing the world where you're likely to be or when your house is empty. For those who want to start softly and just be a bit more active, a less intensive option may be having a step counting app. Again, there are lots of different apps out there. My example is Sweatcoin, a free app that allows you to earn Sweatcoins, a form of digital currency that can be traded in the Sweatcoin store for discount codes, vouchers, and even given to good causes. This is a simple app and can run in the background, so you don't even need to remember to switch it on. Finally, calorie counter apps are a great way to look at what is actually going on in your body in the first place. On apps like MyFitnessPal, you can log your weight, calorie consumption, calorie output, and also have the ability to sync this with other fitness apps, so you don't need to log your exercise twice. As long as you're honest and log all of those glasses of Prosecco, not just the first, you're rewarded with detailed feedback on not only your calorie intake and output, but where those calories came from. Whatever you choose to do for the new you in the new year, why not do a bit of looking around and see what you can pick up for free first? I'll leave you with one of my favourite sayings, anyone can do nothing. For a visual version of this episode, check out the TT Radio 2021 Twitter feed. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Okay, I am returned. So, just before the break, um, I was talking about um, what was I talking about? Um, yeah, so I was talking about um, about demonic possession and about the reasons we might think that um, somebody could be possessed by a demon, other than them actually being possessed by a demon. Um, 
Now, we're all, probably all familiar with Occam's razor, you know, the idea that all, th- all things being equal, the simplest answer is usually the correct one. Um, but you might be less familiar with uh, Occam's broom. Um, I came across this from uh, Daniel Dennett, and he said that the molecular biologist uh, Sidney Brenner um, talked about Occam's broom to describe the process in which inconvenient facts are whisked under the rug by intellectually dishonest champions of one theory or another. Now, the problem with it is it's often used by propagandists who direct their efforts at the lay public. Now, the thing is, is the absence of a fact that has been swept off the scheme, uh, swept off the scheme by Occam's Occam's broom, is unnoticeable except by experts. So it's really hard to note the um, something that's missing when you don't know very much about a topic. And this has actually been something that I've struggled with when I've been researching for this show, you know, and in my own kind of... um, in my own life, I'm constantly trying to get cleverer, get better, get more knowledgeable. I always feel like I don't know, know enough. I always feel like I don't, no, I'm not clever enough. Um, I sometimes think, oh, I've, I've read something. And then and then it's like, oh, well, obviously this is wrong, someone says on Twitter. And then I feel silly. Um, now, when Brenner coined the term, he was pointing out that in the heat of battle, and this is quoting Dennett, um, even serious scientists cannot sometimes resist overlooking some data that seriously undermine their pet theory. It's a temptation to be resisted no matter what. And this is another thing about human beings as well, is not only are we unconsciously biased, but we can tell ourselves stories that will let us get away with certain things. Now, if I go back to the uh, the tweet that kind of started this all off, a huge shout out to our parents who didn't cry mental health when they were struggling to give us this life. You know, am I now painting a picture that of human beings that are biased, that are selfish, that are self-involved, that are self-deceived, who are willingly self-deceived, for example, and who, you know, cry when things get too hard and they're not the center of the universe. Is that what I'm, is that the picture I'm painting? Well, I don't think I am. You see, I think being alive, if we think about what I've just talked about so far, being alive um, is hard enough as it is. Um, You know, if you think about all of the things that we can get wrong, all of the things we've got to process, all of the information, you know, layers upon layers upon layers upon layers, you know, all of the things that we don't know that we've got to figure out almost from scratch. We've got to learn by making mistakes. See, discovery learning gets mocked a lot on Twitter. But that's how we live. We learn by discovery learning. We bumble through life trying stuff out. You know, one of the problems I have sometimes when I'm researching for this show um, is that I don't know whether an article's worth reading until I've read the article. And by that point, I've already sunk the time into it. And so I can end up reading something halfway through and think, this is not what I expected at all. This is dull. This is not what I wanted. This is not going to help me. And this is why I end up on so many different tangents that I attempt to bring together. You know, I know I'm not fooling anyone, but because I have to sink that time into it, you know, and not only do I have to read it, but I have to process it and think about it and link it to everything else. And that's really, really difficult to do. And But that's how, what we all do. We all discover, we learn, you know. So it's no wonder that we ended up believing in the homunculus. So the homunculus, it literally means tiny man. Um, and it, um, it doesn't really appear um, before um, the 1500s. It first appears by name um, in alchemical writings, which are attributed to uh, Paracelsus. 
Um, and he outlined his method for creating um, homunculi. I'll just share something with you. He said that the sperm of a man be putrefied by itself in a sealed cucurbit for, um, or cucurbit, I don't actually know what that is, for 40 days with the highest degree of putrefaction in a horse's womb or at least so long that it comes to life and moves itself and stirs, which is easily observed. After this time, it will look somewhat like a man, but transparent without a body. If after this it be fed wisely with the arcanum of human blood and be nourished for up to 40 weeks and be kept in the even heat of the horse's womb, a living human child goes therefrom, with all its members like another child, which is born of a woman, but much smaller. Now, something like that. You're going to want to have done it, aren't you, to be that certain and that specific. But that definitely didn't happen. And this is the strange thing about human beings is that we can come up with stuff like that. You know, we can just make stuff up because there was no way that uh, that Paracelsus saw that. But and the other side of um, the homunculus is um, is the idea of preformationism. It's a po formerly popular theory from from later on in history that animals developed from miniature versions of themselves. So um, animals, you know, originally have a tiny animal. So sperm were believed to contain complete preformed individuals called animalcules. Um, and so development was all about just enlarging that. And this includes human beings. It's a wonderful uh, picture um, I've seen of, uh, of this kind of tiny little sperm man who kind of rides the, uh, the head of the sperm cell like a, um, a fighter pilot flies a plane. Um, now, and I love this idea of like we were tiny and we get bigger. And, and you know, logically, there's nothing really wrong with that, you know. We, you know, when we're um, when we're born, we're tiny. It's the smallest we're ever going to be. And then we gradually get bigger. It's not out of the realms of possibility to say that we could have been even tinier. You know, there's a, a certain quite cute little logic to that. Um, but it was the beginning of uh, spermist theory. Uh, Nicholas uh, Hartsoker came up with this idea um, that inside the sperm was this little man that was then placed inside the woman for growth into a child and this again it also i mean is as a tangent was is a good way of uh, making women um, look like they're just containers for this sperm you know the woman doesn't do anything other than incubate this little homunculus that gradually gets bigger and bigger and bigger um but the weird thing about it is you end up with a bit of a reductio ad absurdum because you end up with, uh, you know, it was later pointed out that if the sperm was a homunculus identical uh, in all but size to an adult, then the homunculus may have sperm of its own, which then has sperm of its own, has sperm of its own, have sperm of its own. So that gets rather silly rather quickly. And I find that hilarious and I really, really enjoyed it. So uh, homunculi almost, no, they don't exist, do they? We know that it doesn't exist. And you know what? Science is the history of people being wrong about stuff. Science isn't so much about being right, correct me if I'm wrong here, people who are listening, but as it is about, um, you know, being less wrong every time. There's a wonderful website called Less Wrong that I really, really enjoy, um, which um, deals with life very much from this vantage. But the problem is, is that it sometimes, and especially I found this through my research more and more and more, it feels like we're just wrong about everything a lot of the time. So I was looking at some, uh, I was looking at this article about reversals in psychology. And apparently psychology is notorious and the social sciences are notorious um, for reversals. Um, and more worrying are reliability problems. I read that studies that replicate are cited at the same rate as studies that don't. 
So replication is obviously really, really important because otherwise anyone could claim anything. Um, we, um, but that's really worrying. You know, the idea that um, like 50% of social science studies just won't replicate indicates that they don't actually work. You know that the data has been uh, there's been uh, there's there's been bias or uh, you know something like the Texas sharpshooter fallacy. You know where you uh, draw a target around where all the gunshots went and said, "Oh yeah, I had a perf I had perfect shots." Um, you know, it's all you know potentially even a case of good old Occam's broom. You know, oh I've seen uh, something that doesn't fit with my idea. Incomes cognitive bias. Let's sweep that under the rug. Let's make my theory look look pretty. You know, we see this we see this all the time. Um, you know, I've been reading a book recently, and I've been you know I read a few things, and I've gone. I'm sure that's been debunked. I'm sure that's not true. But we get it with things like growth mindset. You know, schools spend so much time going into growth mindset, but apparently there's reason to be cautious about um, about growth mindset and mindfulness for mental health. Studies are low quality in using consistent designs. There's higher heterogeneity than other mental health treatments. Strong reasons suggest reporting bias. Nightmare. So, you know, and I know for a fact that so many schools have went in, you know, heavy with growth mindset and with mindfulness. And yet, what if it's no, no good? What if it what if it's as meaningless as learning styles? What if it turns out, after all, learning styles were actually right? I mean, I know it's been debunked, but it just at this point, you know, you, I see so many people being certain and certain and certain on Twitter. And I think, yeah, but I don't really know anything. And that's not good for my self-esteem. And so, look, I mean, just to kind of track back a little bit, what I feel like I ended up with on this on this journey, you know, and I've gone from the last words of Vincent van Hoff, you know, the sadness will last forever, you know, to the idea that this modern generation of adults all whinges about mental health, um, you know, all through to the idea that we don't change our minds, that we aren't very good at noticing when we're wrong, that we want to see... Um, you know, the world through our eyes and in our image. It doesn't paint a very good picture of human beings. No wonder we're sad. But I don't know. I think, to be honest with you, I'm, I am I tweeted quite a while ago, it's a glorious thing to be wrong. And I don't always follow up on this in real life. But I think it's probably one of the best things I ever decided to try to think was to really embrace the idea of wrongness. Really embrace the idea that, yeah, I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to do stuff wrong. And that's absolutely fine. And one of the things I've actually been looking at recently, one of the other ways to that I've been feeling like I've been getting better is starting to think about possible advantages to um, to sadness, possible advantages to uh, to pain and suffering. And I read this really fascinating article called uh, "Are There Hidden Advantages to Pain and Suffering?" Um, now, it's no secret that a lot of human beings enjoy watching other people struggle and suffer. I mean, if you look at things like reality television, for example, you know, we we enjoy it. And I remember I was reading about um, a show. Um, I forget what it was called, but it was um, it was all about women coming onto this show in the 1950s. You know, um, it was women who um whose husbands have been killed in hunting accidents mothers of chronically sick children uh, grocery store owners who couldn't afford stock um and basically they had to talk about you know why their life was terrible and why they needed um why they needed to win the prize money you know it's really you can see footage of it i cannot remember what this show is called um to um 
I'm just going to see if I can find it. Uh, if I can actually find it. Um, I'll put it on Twitter later. But um, but this show, they basically had to do this sob story and kind of best sob story won the prize and um, and they got some sort of help. Uh, and the way that um, they decided a winner was that the um, audience members applauded for the woman they thought was uh, most deserving. Queen for a day, I think it was called. Queen for a day. I'm pretty sure it was called that. It's come back because... Um, the winner's giving a jeweled crown a robe and they're sat on a throne and then they're given all of these treats. And it's bizarre. And if you want, you can watch footage of Queen for a day on, um, it is dreadful, Elaine. If, but if you watch footage of it on YouTube and you can see these women crying and talking about how terrible their lives are and then the audience clap based on who they think had the worst life and then they're plonked on this throne. It's terrifying how inhumane it is um but yeah you, you can see footage of it on youtube and the the face of the woman who ends up on the uh, on the throne is, is something else sounds like a well short story it really does doesn't it it really does but i can assure you it is absolutely it does it sounds it sounds like a nightmare doesn't it it sounds dystopian the reason i mention this is because we we have a really funny relationship with the suffering of others and this is this is what i've really been wrestling with is that I've seen two sides to humanity. I've seen a side to humanity that's desperate to connect with other people, that's desperate to empathize, that's desperate to be compassionate. And another side that wants to sort of do it and tries to do it, but doesn't do it very well. And if I'm being charitable, I think that's what that tweet was doing. You know, a huge shout out to our parents who didn't cry mental health when they were struggling to give us this life. Somewhere in there is an attempt to be part of the conversation. I mean, maybe I'm being too kind, I don't know, but somewhere in there is an attempt to understand. And I do believe in the idea of understanding my getting things wrong. I do, I, you know, by putting things out there, by saying things on Twitter, and you know, I do it myself, you know, you don't have to stick with your ideas. Um, but I think maybe that's what's happening. Um, but we do have this very, very strange relationship with each other when it comes to compassion. Um, we have this very strange relationship to pain as well. We don't just hide away from pain. Often we seek it out. Um, we love watching sad films, but not just this. We're attracted um, to things that can harm us, that can hurt us. Um, as somebody who has formerly um, run long distance, I've run a marathon, sometimes you want the pain. I don't know what it is, whether it's a way of telling yourself that you're valuable or that you can survive or tapping in some sort of primitive instinct, but you want the pain. Um, Dostoevsky in Notes from Underground, uh, he write, the narrator mocks the idea that humans seek only what is beneficial to them. He says uh, a man may consciously, purposefully desire what is injurious to himself, what is stupid, very stupid, simply in order to have the right to desire for himself even what is very stupid and not to be bound by any desire the uh, obligation to desire what is only rational so we often and we, and we do it to ourselves we self-harm ourselves even in terms of the food we eat and the alcohol we drink we, we have a very weird relationship with with our own suffering um victor frankl argued that um those who suffer are spurred to help others because it gives meaning although paul bloom argues that he is an outlier um and Paul Bloom argues that actually when we suffer, it doesn't make us kinder. We have to make a real effort separately to be kinder to each other. So it's an absolute minefield. But what I and, and I um, and this is where I say I talk a bit personally. Um, one of the reasons for this episode and one of the reasons for its kind of fragmentation and the nature of his exploration and kind of how broad it goes 
um, is because of my own stuff. Uh, I say my own suffering. My own, um, I was going to say battle as well. I won't say that. My own experiences with uh, with issues to do with mental health. Um, I uh, take antidepressants. I suffer from depression, um, anxiety, more depression than anxiety. Um, I am suspected of having ADHD. I'm currently seeking diagnosis for ADHD and, and uh, potentially being plonked somewhere on the autistic spectrum. Um, I'm going to invite Katrina in now as well as she's calling in and I am going to hear from Katrina in a couple of minutes. So I've just asked her to connect just while I'm kind of wrapping up this, this section. But the reason I, um, the reason I bring this up is because this is why this, uh, this episode was important because it's a way, it wasn't just about the radio show. It was a way for me to explore, um, you know, how we all feel and why we feel the way we do. And so the journey I went on, it was to do a radio show, but really it was an example of um, a thing I'm a big fan of, which is uh, thinking in public. Anyway, to kind of bring these strands together before we uh, finish off with talking about, um, before we talk about uh, well-being for teachers, and we kind of make, we kind of funnel this, all of this in, and I talked to Katrina. Um, started thinking about necessary sadness, vital sadness, um, and I started thinking about uh, the myth of uh, Demeter and Persephone. Um, Demeter um, loved her daughter Persephone very much, but she was taken down to uh, um, to hell with Hades, or Hades, I suppose you would call it Hades as a person in a place, right? Um, correct me if I'm wrong, myth fans. Um, and so, but anyway, the deal was struck that Persephone had to stay um, down with Hades uh, for half the year and come up for half the year. And this is where, according to Greek mythology, we get um, winter and we get summer. And so when Persephone comes back, uh, Demeter fills, um, fills the world with summer and then her weeping, her sadness freezes the earth. Um, and it got me thinking about the cycles we go through. You know, I'm never permanently depressed. I go through these through these cycles, uh, you know, some of them crushingly horrible, some of them optimistic, some of them at the moment I'm feeling feel great, um, you know. And, um, but what got me thinking about the, the nature of cycles, and I read an article about the idea of wintering, which is based on a book from Catherine May, which I am going to read called Wintering. And it's all about the idea that uh, the idea of psychological wintering is to remember that our lives are cyclical and they're not linear and that we need to have these these winter periods. And we need to when we're feeling depressed, and we're feeling down, we're feeling low. We need to remember that Persephone won't be with Hades forever. We need to remember that it's not about self-improvement. It's not about a terminal goal. It's not about self-flagellation and we're not good enough. It's not about salvation. You know, this is the thing with a lot of religions. It's all about that terminal goal of salvation. It's about self-improvement. Uh, Catherine May argues, no, it shouldn't be about that. It should be cyclical. When a tree, um, during the winter, trees get paired back to the bones, um, and they lose their leaves, they scar, they scar over. And that's similar to what happens with us, I think. You know, when we when we go through trauma, we get paired back to the bones and we we scar over. The thing is, is that um, our scars are always there under the skin. Um, I learned from the inimitable uh, Tabitha McIntosh that um, in severe cases of scurvy, old wounds reopen. 
all of our wounds are under the skin. We just can't see them. Um, and if we have severe cases of scurvy, um, all our old wounds reopen. They're there waiting for us. They're closed. Um, little, little white smiles. They're in there. And that's the thing. The body keeps the score and so does the mind. You know, th these marks are indelible. They may fade with time. We may not be always aware of them. But when we winter, when we go through these stages of, of sadness, these sadnesses, these despairs, these bait noirs, whatever you want to call it. And again, language fails us when we talk about these things, but it's all we've got. Um, we have to remember, maybe, and this is what I try to comfort myself with. And if it helps somebody, maybe, I don't know. Um, what I try to comfort myself with now is the idea that it is a cycle. I'm not trying to get better. I'm just trying to get different i'm just going through some phases i'm going through some cycles and i try i try to uh, to see my low periods as a time to look inwards and regenerate you know almost a kind of a hibernation and to remember that my self-worth isn't defined um, by my depression or my anxiety so it's about coming to terms with the fact that our wounds are always there they're under the skin you know, and I talk and I'm using this as a metaphor because I think, you know, one of the worst things I ever did in terms of depression was try to pretend my wounds weren't there. That was when it was the worst. And I'm only talking from experience. And this might mean absolutely sod all to anybody else. But when I pretend that the wounds aren't there, when I pretend there's nothing under the skin and everything's fine is when I start to is when I start to drown. And I don't like drowning. It's unpleasant. So. What I am trying to do and part of the process and one of the reasons I speak to you about this today is because I think that not the secret exactly, not the one weird trick, but maybe part of getting better, what part of well-being is actually just accepting the fact that we aren't well-being sometimes. And maybe it's simpler than that. But I want to get another perspective now. I am just going to play the advert one more time. It'll be um, a couple of minutes. And um, in that time, hopefully we can get Katrina to connect. And after a very short, I'm talking about one or two minute break, um, we're going to be talking about well-being in schools. I would really like in the chat if anybody wants to share anything about their opinions about well-being, you know, what we should or shouldn't be doing in schools or in society or in our own heads. You say what you like. I can't stop you. Um, so after the break, um, I'm going to be talking to Katrina about well-being in schools. Don't go anywhere. I'll see you in a moment. Are you looking to take your phonics practice forward? Then Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised is the programme for you. Created by two schools with an excellent track record in phonics, Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised will help all children become readers and ensure no child is left behind. The programme offers complete support for your phonics teaching, alongside classroom resources and fully decodable readers from Collins Big Cat. To find out more, follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram or join a free briefing by visiting littlewondelettersandsounds.org.uk. Okay, so we're in our final segment now. So I'm hoping I can get Katrina to call in. Um, so I'm just going to see if she pops up on my screen. And then hopefully we can talk about um, well-being. So... Just going to give Katrina a moment. Um, what do I will say? Ah, so I've just invited Katrina in, and it says Katrina is a speaker now. Hello, can you hear me? 
Hello. Hello. Oh my goodness, did it actually work? <laughs> it worked. Fantastic. You were worried about this, weren't oh, you? I was so worried about this. I have no problem with actually talking. It's the tech. Yes. Um... <laughs> well, this is this is teachers. What I've realised <laughs> is that most a prerequisite of getting into teaching is not being very good with computers. I think. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, and the last time I came on here, I sounded like a cross between a duck and a Dalek. So I'm glad to hear that I actually have a clear voice. It's just a duck now. It's not a Dalek. No, <laughs> it's, no you, you sound absolutely fine. Um, okay, I can hear you. So it's fine. Uh, Carolina said, sorry, I'm late. Zooming my parents. Lol. Um, Carolina, it's absolutely fine. It's so lovely to see you. Uh, Long time supporter of the show. All three episodes. Carolina. Excellent. So um, first of all, I ran a Twitter poll um, mm-hmm. on 28th of December. And I put, are you happy with how your school handles staff well-being? And I put, feel free to be more specific. And nobody was. Um, oh, no, they were. A few people were, to be fair. Mm-hmm. Um, 48.5% of people said they weren't. 23.8% of people said, yes, they were happy. Mm-hmm. And 27.7% said somewhat. Now, so you could say that's almost a 50-50 split between it's fine and it's not fine. Yeah. But I still think that that definite no of nearly 50% is worth talking about. Mm-hmm. Why do you think so many people, and there was 202 votes, so it's mm-hmm. a reasonable sample. Um, why do you think so many teachers are unhappy with um, well-being in their schools? I think it's, uh, it, well, it's a tough job, isn't it? I mean, I read um, some time ago uh, a survey of which were the most stressful jobs and teaching came out third. Um, so number one was air traffic controller. Uh, number two was an, uh, an A&E doctor. And number three was teacher. <laughs> so, you know, that, that gives you some indication. It was in Psychology Magazine or one of those sorts of things. Right. So, you know, I would imagine that it was a reasonable and reasonable survey, but it mm. stuck in my mind as thinking that, you know, this is the level of stress that we're under. Now, if you're the person who is is kind of, um, you know, the, the CPD person in your school or the well-being person in your school, I think it's kind of ironic because the, these people who are in charge of well-being in schools don't necessarily have any training whatsoever in, in well-being in schools. Mm. Um, so the CPD for them isn't necessarily good and there isn't necessarily there isn't necessarily the funding available to actually help people with these things. So what what tends to happen is that it's kind of it's wedged into an inset day for an hour where they did something about mindfulness or um they did something about uh, i had a really great one actually years ago about how to do acupressure on yourself to relieve your stress and it, it was really helpful actually but it was one hour out of an entire year where you've got mm. six inset days right um, so I just, it's in, it's inadequate really. And that's not the fault of anyone in particular. It's just that we have so much else to cram in. And like one of my kind of favorite sayings is that it's very difficult to be curious when you're stressed. Okay. Um, so as it's a very stressful profession and we're in an extremely stressful time for it and everything else is being squeezed and, you know, we have to do things like learn how to teach online, et cetera, and other things which seem to be a priority, it's very, very difficult um, for anybody to think about a way of training you to look after your own well-being. 
And I think this that's really interesting. It ties into what Carolina's just said. And I want to get your perspective. She said, I feel that when things feel fake or gimmicky, mm-hmm. it's quite infuriating. Absolutely. When the attempts are genuine, at least you can value that. Mm-hmm. So how do you stop it feeling fake or gimmicky for teachers? Um, okay, well, we are, right, okay, so I, I am a teacher trainer, I train teachers, I train some today, in fact, so I know that teachers are a really, really tough gig, uh, because we stand out in front of people all day long, and, you know, six hours a day sometimes, and so we think that we're pretty good at giving training to people, um, incredibly cynical about what we receive, so if it's anything like, you know, my personal pet hate is where you have like a massive flip board and loads of different color pens and then everybody has to stand up and talk about the thing oh, that big you've paper. written on. Oh, my God, I, I hate that That can so get much. into staff room 101, can't it? Oh, God, I, yeah. I, I, just, I absolutely can't stand that. So, And also, I don't really like anything when it's like play school where you have to pretend to be a child in year nine or whatever and imagine you're a child in year nine who's late, now act it out. I, I hate that. Role so, play yeah, I hate role play. It's yeah. just awful. Um, and so we are a tough gig. Right. And when you've had like, so for example, today I did two inset days with two different schools that were very, very different from one another. But one was in the morning and one was in the afternoon. And the, one, the second one was the graveyard shift straight after lunch where everyone's a bit narky and a bit fed up mm-hmm. and they've already listened. They've already done the safeguarding one, which is always draining, isn't it? So, oh, you know, yeah. you've got to keep it like the training has to be practical there has to be activities that are involved that you can use that in your work right how are you going to help me with this problem and how can I do that immediately in a very simple way if it works like if it's something like that here's a few things go away do that right come back Mm. to me if it doesn't work tell me come back to me and say hey Katrina it's rubbish uh, and if it does work, then say, well, this might work, but this and this, and it's tweaking, so come back to me. So there's no point in doing a one-off training course like that acupuncture one I had several years ago mm. um, and just dropping it in. It has to be a drip, drip, drip effect. So this has to be like a regular thing. So like one of the most effective training courses that I ever had was when I worked in a special school and we did the sensory system and we did it for an entire year. So we had like at least an hour a month on training on the sensory system. And we started off by mapping our own sensory systems, which was hugely interesting, hugely, hugely helpful. So I think if you're going to do something like when you're talking about well-being, it has to be a drip drip effect. It has to be like a theme for an entire year at least. And then Mm. it has to be regularly revisited. But also the people who are delivering the training need to be of a certain quality. And I think it's something that I said to you on my when we were when I was talking about coming on here is one of my things that I feel very strongly about is that there should be standards for CPD, which possibly really even the Ofsted inspectors rather than inspecting us in schools should be inspecting the training. Mm, that's interesting. That ties into, it's a very Zoe Enser uh, way of looking at things. I know she's very passionate about um, about CPD and CPD mm-hmm. quality. Um, what's interesting though about what you're saying is because are you talking about things that teachers, individual teachers can do like when you talk about quality training? Well, yeah. I mean, I think like, I, I think training should be empowering, right? So you should be getting, you should be get, get, been given a toolkit or some activities or some practical mm. ideas or, you know, a list of ideas or, 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 you know, to go away from the training with something that you can do. And it might need to be something that's consistent. So, you know, you know, you know this earlier, I have a big bugbear about that because, right, 
<laughs> because I'm a Buddhist, right? It's actually 2,500 years old. So this is not really a gimmick, but the way it's been kind of disseminated into schools is it's like sit and listen to the plinky plonky music. It's it's very plastic the way it's mm. it's taught in schools. So I absolutely have hated mindfulness training, even though I should by rights, you know, with my belief system really be quite it's kind of been westernized. It. Yeah. Well it's not just westernized. It's also it's just like pop psychology. It's been watered down. And I think this is the key, isn't it? I often feel like I'm getting pop side. I often feel like it's like the the back pages of OK magazine. Yeah, it is really that I'm it's... that I'm getting. I feel like I'm going to be asked who my secret crush is or something. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. It is. It's like you're going to do some of the Cosmo top ten or something, isn't it? Yes, which I'm sure would be delightful on my lunch break. But, but, but so there's a few things actually. This is really really interesting. I'm going to pick up on this idea of big science in a moment from mm-hmm. Chris Bowles. Um, Carolina says again. Instead of doing Secret Santa or a school friend, just relieve some of the pressures of the daily tasks we have to do. Now, I'm going to extrapolate that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Because what you've been talking about so far is stuff that teachers can do, which I think is really important. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously, an upset individual can only really change themselves in the sense that what I found, just as a brief tangent, is that nobody can tell me to pull myself together. No. That's not acceptable. But I can totally tell myself to pull myself together. Oh, totally, yeah. And I find that I often have to. I often Mm -hmm. say, right, Alex, stop being an idiot. Right, come on, you know, sort of thing. And I need to say that to myself sometimes or I'll just wallow. But if someone else says it to me, that's cruel. Um, But what's interesting is that when Carolina says relieve some of the pressures of the daily tasks we have to do, that's out of our hands. How much of well-being do you think is going to improve based on bigger changes, you know, sort of organisational changes versus localised teacher-based changes? Okay, well, you know, look, I've been teaching a long time. It's actually my 22nd anniversary of teaching this month. So it's a long time I've been teaching. Mm. And I've taught in a lot of different schools and now I'm effectively freelance. So I go to a lot of different schools, Mm. right? So, you know, I've seen a lot right and I've been mainstream I've been special I've been specialist school I've been private I've been you know primary secondary early years you name it I've done the lot basically and it's all about leadership and culture and you will get some leaders who really really get it and who are very very good at taking the pressure off when needs be Mm but also applying it when needs be, because you do get some people who need a little bit of motivation in the right Mm. direction. Um, And you get other people who absolutely, as I say, be curious about how they can improve things because they're too busy dealing with their own stress because being ahead or SLT is an incredibly stressful Mm. job. Um, You know, I've never done it. I've been middle management up to, well, I was Senko, which is SLT, but, you know, it's kind of SLT with a twist, isn't it, Mm. Senko? Um, You know, it's very, very stressful to do that. And so it's difficult. It's simple, but not necessarily easy, right, to actually change the culture of the school, to make it so that everybody goes home by four o'clock on a Friday, for example, Mm. Um, but when when that does happen, you see such a massive difference. Like staff absenteeism goes down. Um, you know, it's less shouty. The atmosphere in places, people mm. tend less are less likely to raise their voice at children. They're less likely to um, escalate. You know, 
rather than de-escalate a situation with a child who's who's challenging, they're more likely to be able to de-escalate well. They're more likely to be able to cope with something if it is challenging. They're more likely to do better in their career. They'll give that extra extra bit. They'll go that extra mile, etc. So, you know, it is all about culture, really. I think that that's the that's the ultimate. The, the ultimate thing is really is to have a culture where well-being is absolutely at the heart. So it, it's not so much something we add into teaching. It's something that is teaching itself. Yeah. It is, it is intertwined, isn't it? Um, it's interesting what Carolina says. She says the irony of having an inset day where hours are devoted to well-being sessions yeah. where you could have department time. God, I would kill for department time. Oh, my God, um, so much. Yeah. And I think, do you know, one thing that does get lost for me, um, and I'm an English teacher, is... I never get to do English teaching CPD mm-hmm. at school. And yet I feel like the most important thing I do is teach English. Mm-hmm. Like I know there's loads of other stuff that I do and I know all the pastoral stuff. I was obviously important, but most of my day is spent telling students things about books. And I really feel like we should all be getting better at that as teachers, but there's so much else that prevents us doing that. And we got into the job, didn't we? Um, because yeah. of that kind of joy of that subject as well. Well, um, you know, if you're, a se- if you're a secondary teacher, then certainly that is the case that you have your subject that is absolutely your passion and you want to pass that, that fire on to the next generation. So that makes perfect sense. And it is, it's interesting as well, because if you look at the number of days that teachers in other countries teach, it's significantly less. I mean, I worked in Germany for a couple of years. Like I was originally a German teacher and I taught in an international school in Germany. And um, we had 14 more bank holidays a year. Goodness me. So, and like that's Germany, which is considered to be like, you know, very work a day, isn't it? Um, But we had two weeks more holiday because everybody had two weeks more holiday. Yeah. I mean, I suppose it's it, those cultural things um, are national, aren't they? I remember going to Denmark and seeing all these young, incredibly healthy, good-looking married couples wandering around, and the baby was strapped to the dad sometimes, mm-hmm. and sometimes it was strapped to the woman. But they're all, but then I realised that they were both off for a year, mm-hmm. fully paid. Yep. And and I just thought, well, no wonder you're happy, you know, <laughs> sort of thing. I had um, I had three weeks off when my daughter was born, and that's because mm-hmm. she spent two weeks um, in a NICU having nearly died. So, and I had three weeks off. Oh my goodness! Um, and uh, I'm pretty sure I had PTSD. Um, well, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. It's completely understandable. <laughs> yeah. My cousin, my cousin, she's a teacher in Spain. She's an English teacher in Spain. Her husband's also a teacher, and um, he gets twenty weeks. Wow pat leave that's pat leave though that is not mat leave that's pat leave so you know it's amazing and also as well he can take it at different parts of the year so he's taken six weeks off at the beginning of you know just after she's come out of hospital and then he's going to take um the summer basically off so that they can spend that time together makes a massive difference makes Makes a a huge difference difference. i I spend a lot of time away from my daughter i feel and she's uh she's two and a bit now and it's just sometimes it just it's just painful you just think i just want to spend time with you you're way more important you know, but it's really tricky because I think what's clear, isn't it, is that we can, as teachers, we can get better, can't we, at managing ourselves mm-hmm. in some cases. But while there's a culture that limits us and hems us in, we're always going to struggle. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, yeah, and it is, it's about school culture. The, the national culture around teaching at the moment is 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 head-spinningly strange, I would say, mm. really, with, you know, these these kind of, DFE things that come through and um 
it's it's very confusing as well to know to know exactly what's going on and 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 that makes it it more stressful because everybody nobody really knows whether we're going to be suddenly you know everybody's teaching online again or or whatever and it's it's very it's very confusing and stressful and and there isn't like and there there is you know this the, all these notions of things like oh we're going to get this army of supply teachers from people who've left <laughs> teaching really want to come into the classroom right now in the middle of a covid outbreak yeah that's a great idea well, yeah, i tweeted rather um sarcastically uh, a few weeks ago when that was announced about how uh, the dfe were going to appoint a necromancer and raise dead teachers <laughs> from the dead um oh, that'll be the next thing just yeah. you know shambling to a classroom near you um yeah i think um thank you caroline i do love a laughing emoji um now so i just want to think about mental health more generally mm-hmm. um we talked about a school culture um, being a bit of the problem with staff mental health. And I feel like mm. we're starting to scratch the surface. How much do you think there's a national culture that affects well-being in the UK? Uh, I think it probably has got better. So, I, you know, full disclosure, I'm, I'm a neurodivergent person myself. I have dyslexia, but also a, a bipolar condition. Mm. Um, so I've you know, I've had my fair share of mental health difficulties. I actually had a manic episode earlier this summer, but it was the first time I've had one in 12 years. So um, that gives you some idea of just how stressful things have been recently. Um, I think that I still experience ableist language used against me as a bipolar person now. Okay. It's probably, there are people who like, they have at least heard of it, right? So there are there are a lot of people who are very, very understanding. It makes literally no difference to my work. You know, schools still want to work with me and I'm very open about the fact I'm bipolar. It's all over my website. I talk about it in my training, mm. et cetera. I, you know, I'm completely out and proud about it. Um, but I still I still think there's a lot of like, you know, I mean, if you take social media as an example, People will say, hey, you're crazy or, you know, you're a nutter or, you know, you're a lunatic. And those kind of that kind of language is still kind of, like you were talking earlier about language. It was really interesting what you were saying, actually, um, because it, those those things are still used as insults. Mm. Um, but what, what they're actually talking about is people who have mental health problems like me, really. Um mm. And it's it, it's still it's it's quite interesting for me because I do think things have improved. I think that it's good that people are talking more positively about mental health and more openly about it. And the pandemic has really brought that to the fore. But I still think there's a huge amount of work to be done. Yeah. So if we talk about the work that needs to be done, what do you think the first steps are? Um. Well, it's a big question. I know these are big questions. And I'm big, not looking these, for you no, to these, solve everything. These are big questions, but like I have thought about it. Uh, yeah, no, of course. <laughs> so <laughs> no, I, think, I know it's just that I'm not asking you to like uh, no, reinvigorate no, the country. No, I, I don't think I can. Um, <laughs> not at like 20, 20 past nine on a. Oh, it's late, isn't it? Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> I think there needs to be better funding for mental health services i mean if you've ever tried if you ever if you're a special needs or even like anybody in pastoral care and you've ever tried to get um, a kid referred to cams um you know the the child and adolescent mental health team or sips whatever they're called in your area Mm -hmm. it is nigh on impossible to get um children especially 
um, engaged in those services. And almost certainly what will happen is the child will be um, will, will be seen once and will, quote, refuse to engage and therefore they'll just take them off the list again. Um, yes. so, the, so CAMS is, a, so all mental health services are a Cinderella service, but the CAMS service is the Cinderella service of Cinderella services. And mm. at the moment we need it more than ever. So there has to be a priority, I think, given by government to funding mental health properly, right? I'm not asking for billions and billions of pounds here. I'm just asking for the actual services that are to be funded properly mm. and for there to be enough people to do the work. I mean, for example, like I have a community psychiatric nurse and uh, during the, co did the first COVID crisis, she was redeployed to a COVID ward. Mm. Now, I'm not really sure you want to be intubated by a psychiatric nurse, do you? <laughs> um, I don't imagine you know, you're very good at it. No, I wouldn't imagine so. I mean, I don't know what her qualifications are, to be honest. She's me, a very good psychiatric yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, I know. She'd be, <laughs> she'd be able to give it a go. She's had nursing training at some point mm, in her life. But, you know, it, it, it's just things like that. It's like the priorities, the priority needs to be, if they put as much effort into helping people's mental health and well-being, um, as they do into cancer, then things would be a lot better. And the, the second important thing I think is there needs to be there need to be more talking therapies available because if you try and get even like onto like a six week CBT, it's almost impossible to get that. It took me a while. No, well, I mean the thing is, I I have therapy every week, but it's private. I pay for it myself, yeah. and I have done for like the last three years, and I've had bits and bobs on the nhs but it, you know it's like an 18 months waiting list and then you get six to 12 weeks mm. so that's not enough um and that's why so many people are, are reliant upon upon um purely medication now i have no problem with medication but um i think that the medication stops you feeling sick but it doesn't necessarily help you to deal with the root issues but I'm, I'm not anti anti medication at all, by the way. There, so yeah. So those that that's my those that's my feeling is is better funding and better talking therapy, and then also people saying I have talking therapy, I go to therapy every week, I'm having art therapy, I'm having mm. equine therapy, I'm having this and this, and it's really helping me with my PTSD or my anxiety or everything. So yeah, I mean it's it's about about people being open and honest about the fact that they need to seek help. Yeah. And I suppose then, because people might not even know, I remember when I was, so I've always avoided um, any sort of help for years and years and years. And and sort of this year, well, last year um, was the first time I ever really pursued anything. I would, people say to me, you really need to go and you should go and do this, speak to this person, ring this number. And I'll go, yeah, but I'll be fine soon. I'll mm -hmm. just, I'll be fine. I'll just mm -hmm. weather it, you know, and, and gradually though, but like I said about scars, you know, your body keeps the score and eventually mm -hmm. you go, God, I am a network of scars. What is going on? So mm -hmm. in the end, I thought I need to find out what's out there. And I realized I didn't even know what was available. I yeah. didn't even know where I would go um, other than being on antidepressants a bit mm -hmm. sort of thing. And, well, they seem to be helping. But it's it's still a strange thing to be somebody who talks about mental health publicly from my perspective. Um, mm -hmm. I, have a, I have a blog. I've written several pieces about it. Um, what's interesting, though, is that the more I've written personally, confessionally, openly, the more people have engaged. Um, I used to blog about um, teaching, mm -hmm. and now there's more. There's more people that are interested. More people that are supportive, and I'm 
whenever I talk about mental health on social media or on my blog, I always get this immediate feeling of, oh my God, I'm like, it's the yeah. dream when you're naked in the middle of an exam. It's that horrible feeling of vulnerability. Oh yeah. I've been and there. yet <laughs> I always end up feeling better for it. A bit mm. like going for a run, I suppose. I, I Afterwards, you know, after I've been through that pain, that kind it's kind of a bit of a purging maybe a bit of a catharsis and maybe that's what people are trying to do on twitter um and i think maybe twitter could be a friendlier place couldn't it um yeah. in terms of allowing people um more license to express themselves without fear because i think there are so many people who have twitter accounts who don't tweet because they're worried no one will see it or because they'll be ridiculed right Oh, absolutely. I mean, I just say what I think. <laughs> um, but and again, like I've been like since I since I set up their Twitter account, which was only like October last year, I've been really open about the fact that I have mental health difficulties. I was, you know, I told people that I was that I was experiencing a manic episode last summer. And and like you said, you, you do like, you know, it's that um, I don't know whether you you uh, ever um, have listened to or watched Brene Brown and she talks about being in the arena. All right. So she talks about, you know, there's this quote that she has from um, Roosevelt and it, it talks about, um, you know, fear not the critic who um, pours scorn upon the person who is in the, who's in the arena, you know, basically bearing their all and, and, and getting themselves blooded and so on and so forth. If, you know, don't be the critic, be the person in the arena, because it doesn't matter if you fail at something like you were talking earlier about about learning through discovery. And I'm, mm. I'm all for that. And the other thing is, as well, like, you know, I'm really, really in favor of the phrase, what's the point of having a mind if you can't change it? And I've mm. changed my mind about things a 100,000 times. And I don't think that it's me being contradictory. I just think that in light of new information, I'll change my mind on something. And so I've just, you know, and I, I make mistakes and I'm quite open about the fact that I make mistakes, but I think it's really important that at least you continue to try. And like you said, I've actually had really, really positive experiences of saying, you know, look, my mental health's not good today. I'm finding this really difficult. Um, you know, I find it really stressful. Mm. Um, but the people have been amazing, actually. People are people are. I mean, you usually do get a few idiots because you get a few trolls on Twitter, of course. You don't you? But but yeah, people have been amazing. So I think it's really good, and you know, and also as well, I really enjoyed listening to your show tonight. It's been thank you. It's been really really interesting to hear everything that you've said, and and you know, it all makes a lot of sense. So thank you for inviting me on. You're very welcome. And we are just out of time. Um, I'd like to thank you so much for coming on. I've really enjoyed it. I'd love to have you on again. It's been really, really enlightening for me. Um, I'm going to end actually with a little quotation from the Netflix show, The Good Place. Um, oh, I love that show. I love it so much. It's, it's not brilliant. about what we did. It's about what we're going to do tomorrow. Good night, everyone. Thanks very much. Thank you. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.